This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Teresa Lamagne, an epidemiologist at Public Health England. We'll be discussing outbreaks of Group A streptococcus associated with home health care in England. Welcome, Dr. Lamagne. Thank you, Sarah. What is Group A streptococcus? So Group A streptococcus is a bacterium which can cause disease in people. It can colonize different body sites, uh, particularly the throat, without leading to any symptoms, but it can, under certain circumstances, also cause a, a range of infections. And what illnesses does it cause? So the bacterium is actually very versatile, and it can cause a, a wide range of different infections at different body sites, including the respiratory tract, skin and soft tissue, or joints. And these can range in severity from very mild to, in fact, what we would call life-threatening invasive disease. And where would a person most likely get infected? So the infections are primarily acquired by having close contact with someone who has the infection themselves or who is carrying the organism without any symptoms. And so this could, of course, occur in a whole range of different settings, but primarily uh, within the community. So it's bacterial, so I guess antibiotics are used. Is that how these infections are treated? That's correct. So the, uh, the infection does need to be treated with antibiotics. It's not something that can be left uh, untreated. And thankfully, the bacteria remains fully susceptible to penicillin, so there's no documented resistance to penicillin worldwide, so this remains our first treatment of choice. In England, these are notifiable to public health teams. What does that mean and what does it entail? Yes, that's correct. So since 2010, these infections have been notifiable by law. So that means that if a clinician diagnoses this infection in a patient, then they are required by law to notify the local health protection teams that they have uh, diagnosed uh, such an infection. So this is done fairly quickly. We ask them to do it within 24 hours of diagnosis. And typically, we receive these notifications uh, by, uh, by phone call, although they can also uh, email details of, of the patients to the local teams as well. In addition to that, the local health protection teams have a direct feed of laboratory diagnostic information for um, patients within their uh, patch, so in, in their part of the country. So they can also pick up cases by reviewing data from, from those systems as well. A lot of these infections um, occur or are, are noticed in um, clinical settings. So if these infections occur at home, do they get notified? And if so, how? Yeah, so, I mean, the first thing to note is that invasive group A streptococcal infections, um, these are, are very serious infections. The patients will be very unwell, so they would be typically admitted to, to a hospital for management of those infections. Regardless, though, of whether the patient is at home, let's say, I mean, it'd be very rare that they would be diagnosed in home, but let's say they are in a, a long-term care facility or something outside of a hospital setting, Wherever they are, when that clinical sample is taken from the patient, processed by the microbiology laboratory, uh, all of those infections, regardless of where the patient actually is at the time, will all be notified to us. 
So our, in the UK, our microbiology laboratories are, are based mainly in hospitals, and they will take samples from across uh, from, from across all different settings, uh, not just hospital inpatients. So it, it's quite easy for them to notify those infections, regardless of where the patient resides. I see. Okay. So apparently, England is unique in having home healthcare acquired infections. Um, why is this? Does this mean that only England has them, or only England is aware that they have them? Well, that's that's uh, an excellent question, and and the question that we're asking ourselves as well. It does seem to me that it's unlikely that we are unique in in being the only country where these outbreaks uh, occur. I think it's very likely that they do occur elsewhere. I think what we can see from our own experience is that they are difficult to detect. So we suspect, but we may be wrong, of course, that they are actually occurring in, in other countries, but perhaps the the teams there are not yet um, tuned into them and are not identifying them. It, in a way, within the UK, we are quite well placed to detect these outbreaks because uh, we do ask that all our invasive group A streptococcal isolates are sent to a, a central reference facility in, in London. So we receive those isolates from around the whole country. We can look at the different strains that are within those isolates, and we can help the local teams in, in identifying outbreaks by uh, seeing patterns within those strains. So, for example, a, a geographical cluster of the same type of strain uh, we can feed that back, and that helps them to to identify a possible outbreak on their patch. Are these infections actually more prevalent at home than in a clinical setting anymore? So it, in terms of the these invasive infections, then most of them are thought to be acquired within the communities, the general community settings, uh, with, with only around about 10% or perhaps less linked to uh, hospital settings. Do home infections have the same or a higher fatality rate than hospital-acquired ones? So that's a, a difficult question to answer. In, in terms of infections that are linked to home health care, we have to sort of bear in mind who are these patients who are receiving home health care. So these will be patients who are unable to travel to local health care facilities and receive care there, so they need to they need the healthcare provider to come to them to deliver the care they need. So if we bear that in mind, then we realise that we are talking generally about an older population, uh, a population who may have complex health needs and may not have the sort of physiological reserves to to fight infections. So in a way that you do see a high case fatality rate within these patients. But that is in itself a reflection of, of them as individuals rather than a place where the infections uh, arise. So home health care infections aren't any more deadly in and of themselves than if they were acquired anywhere else, is what you're saying? Well, there, there are some elements of the, of the care that patients are receiving at home, which are, are important factors within this. So a number of these patients are receiving wound care. So if you can imagine that uh, you're a patient who, who has an open wound, that in itself is going to lend itself to, to being a high-risk uh, portal of entry for, for bacteria w within that wound. So 
they're already in a position of vulnerability in terms of uh, acquiring infections because of uh, those wounds, which are themselves the reason they are receiving uh, nursing care at home uh, quite frequently. How many home health care outbreaks did your study investigate and what time period did they cover? Yeah, so we decided to investigate outbreaks that had occurred uh, from the beginning of 2018 and right up to when we started the study, so right up to the end of August 2019. So all the outbreaks that we could identify uh, being linked to home health care were included within this study, so that was a total of 10 outbreaks over that period. And why did you want to do this study? So uh, a number of reasons, Um, the most important of which was that over time we had seen an increase in a number of these outbreaks uh, in England. So we we were aware that teams were uh, detecting them more and more frequently. And importantly, we could also really appreciate the challenges that they were facing in trying to investigate them, in trying to control these outbreaks. And so we wanted just to capture their experience to actually see what seemed to work well for them, what did they learn from their investigations, and what could be helpful to other teams in future who are investigating and controlling these outbreaks. So that was really the the motivator for us, was to just try and see what lessons could be learned from that, and also just to use it as an opportunity to raise awareness, uh, both within health protection teams, but also the wider healthcare community, including, of course, importantly, the teams who are delivering care to patients at home, that these outbreaks do occur and that these are the ways in which they can be in- investigated. So help me with this. How were these infections actually transmitted in home healthcare settings? I understand about vulnerability and open wounds, but where is the bacteria coming from? So that's a a very important question and one of the key questions we wanted to answer within our studies to try and work out what is the mechanism by which uh, these infections are being transmitted from one patient to another. And what we found in this review was that it was very hard to establish definitively what the route of transmission was. Of course, we know that the nurse and or the equipment that he or she brings with them must play a role within the outbreak. It's the only plausible way in which it can be transmitted between one patient and another, where those patients have no direct contact with each other at all. Most of these patients are, in fact, um, housebound, so they don't even leave their homes. So we know that they play a role, but what what is that role? What is the mechanism? That's something that we still have some question marks over. Our expectation was that we would find that in a number of these outbreaks, uh, we would identify nurses who were colonized with group A streptococci and that the carriage of that organism by the, the nurse would be the most plausible route of transmission. Now, that could well be the case. However, the screening that was undertaken of those nurses, which was fairly, it was fairly extensive, um, it didn't, it rarely identified a nurse as a carrier. It did in one of our outbreaks, but in most of them, it, it didn't. We do need to be a little bit cautious not over-interpreting that, because in many of these outbreaks, there was a considerable delay between um, the identification of screening as a tool, as an investigative tool within these outbreaks, 
uh, and it actually being delivered. So in other words, the, the screening sometimes took many, many weeks to organize, and that delay could mean that by the time uh, the nurses were screened, they actually weren't uh, colonized anymore, so maybe some of them had cleared the carriage uh, naturally. Um, and also, we had some concerns about the way some of the screening was organized and, and uh, undertaken. So, And of course, we, well, not of course, but um, for most of these outbreaks, only the throats were screened. And we know from experiences in outbreaks in other settings that there can be other body sites which are colonized, not just throat, um, whereas mostly we focus on the throat. So we can't definitively say too much about nurses uh, carrying the organism not being the reservoir. They could have been. However, when we looked at the pattern of uh, contacts between the nurses and the patient, we often found that in these outbreaks, there, there wasn't, say, one nurse or even a small group of nurses who'd seen all of those cases before they, they developed their infection. So when you looked at those patterns, then it made us think, well, perhaps there's more than one thing going on here. And it could well be that some of the patients that are being seen by this team of, of healthcare providers that one or more of these patients is themselves acting as a reservoir for this infection. So nurse goes into their home, uh, there could be contamination of their equipment, of their clothing, of the bags and materials that were used to transport the, the equipment. That contamination then gets transferred to the next patient. And so it may well be that that uh, contamination of equipment was actually the means by which the, the transmission was, was happening. However, as I say, we, we cannot be too conclusive about that as we were very much reliant on, on information that was supplied to us. I see. So um, from what you're saying, uh, age or gender of, didn't really play much part in the transmitting, I'm not talking about how sick people got, so there was no way to tell really how age or gender could have possibly played a part in this, correct? Not in terms of the transmission itself. Uh, I mean, clearly in terms of the susceptibility to, to infection, and then yes, of course, but you know, by virtue of needing these services, this was a population who were tending to be much older by and large and more, more likely to be female as well. Again, you're looking at an, an older demographic, therefore more, more likely to be female. So I don't think that necessarily plays a role in terms of transmission, though. How was your study structured? So we identified all the outbreaks we wanted to uh, to include in the review by uh, querying uh, a national outbreak and case management database. So we're, we're lucky in a way that we have this national database that all the local teams will input their um, outbreaks and incidents into. So we, we queried that database to identify all potential outbreaks for inclusion within that database. We then combine that with a separate database that's held by the National Reference Microbiology Lab in London. They hold their own outbreak database, so we cross-matched them to make sure we weren't missing any. We then uh, contacted all the health protection teams where um, an outbreak had been recorded 
and uh, all the ones where an outbreak hadn't been recorded, just to check that they hadn't uh, that we hadn't missed anything in terms of how we queried those databases. And once we established all the outbreaks uh, that occurred during that time period, we then set up semi-structured interviews which, with each of the chairs of, of the outbreaks within the local teams. So that's really how we went about uh, getting our, our data capture for the study. Once we'd uh, conducted those interviews, we were able to summarize the details, feed them back to each of the team, check that our understanding was correct and they were happy with our conclusions, and then pull that all together uh, into some collated findings where we could draw out some, some of the key themes. And speaking of those key things briefly, is there anything else about this study you want to tell us? Yeah, so um, as we already mentioned, we included and found all the 10 outbreaks during this time period. Um, all of them were outbreaks where home healthcare delivery was the most plausible mechanism of transmission. So some outbreaks, it, it's not necessarily always very clear what the mechanism of transmission is, what, what are the commonalities between cases. But in all 10, it was the most plausible uh, mechanism of, of, of transmission for the for the organism. So between the 10 outbreaks, there were 96 cases of invasive group A streptococcal infection identified, uh, with 29% of those uh, cases very sadly dying as a result of, of their infection, just highlighting the, the, the impacts of, of these devastating infections on, on the patients. The, the outbreaks were typically very long, uh, with a median duration of 199 days between the first and the last case. And importantly, they, uh, uh, one of the key features that we found with them is that there were often very long gaps between the cases. So the, the, the median was 21 days, but you know, in one instance, there was up to seven months between sequential cases. So that was a, a really key finding as well, and it really helped to explain why the detection of these outbreaks is so problematic, uh, because clearly with, with such a long delay, um, it wouldn't have been very obvious to the local teams who had seen, who, who had been um, advised of each of the cases that there was a connection between them. So really that was one of the key findings uh, for us was just how difficult they can be to, to identify them. With a seven-month gap, how are they able to tell that it's part of the same outbreak? Yeah, so that's a good question. So we had the uh, strain type information that tells us straight away that actually these cases were um, the same EMM type. So the EMM typing is the, the way we characterize the, uh, these bacteria. And actually for a number of these outbreaks, they were subject to whole genome sequencing. So the, the bacteria were actually um, investigated very thoroughly to look at the genetic fingerprints, if you like, of, of each of those strains. And by making that comparison between different cases within the outbreak, you could then uh, infer how closely related those strains were. And, it, and that's what really helps in terms of building the evidence that this is definitely an outbreak because when you're looking at exactly the same strain uh, between cases, then you know there must have been a transmission link uh, between those cases. In fact, in, in one outbreak, the, uh, which was 
um, it was only actually identified from the whole genome sequencing. So it wouldn't have been identifiable to the local team as an outbreak until we undertook um, an analysis of um, a group of strains that were being used, in fact, as a control group for another outbreak. And when they were selected and subject to that whole genome sequencing as a control group, then we actually uncovered an outbreak within those control strains. So one that was entirely um, hidden from view. So it was an entirely cryptic outbreak that would not have been identifiable without the whole genome sequencing being applied. Was there anything else that you discovered you want to tell us about? Yeah, so um, in seeing these these delays in detection of the outbreaks, it became clear to us that it's really, really important for the local teams when they are notified of a case of eye gas invasive group A strep infection, when they are notified these, of these cases, that as part of their routine follow-up of the cases, that they should inquire about whether there has been any whether the patient has received any any home health care. And in doing so, they can record that within their local databases, such that if in the coming months, weeks and months, they see another patient uh, with eye gas infection, they can also ask about this again, and they might start to see commonalities between those patients much more quickly because they recorded that in the first instance and can say, okay, they, these two patients are actually receiving a wound care from the same nursing, district nursing service, for example. So it, it's that, um, that process of logging systematically such information which really helps to, to uh, bring forward the detection of, of an outbreak. So that for us was a key learning point and something that we've fed back to the local teams as, as a uh, a lesson for the future. And how were these outbreaks contained? So that's um, a, a good question and um, one which is slightly difficult to, to answer. So uh, once the outbreaks were, were detected, then we worked very closely uh, with the providers of these services, of course, to um, put in place a number of different control measures depending on what we found uh, to be happening on, on the ground. So the local teams would work very closely with those home healthcare services to review all of their um, infection prevention control practices. So looking in great detail at exactly how they went about stopping uh, infections being transmitted from one patient to another. So looking at what kind of equipment was being used and taken from one patient's home to another, how was that equipment transported, how was it decontaminated uh, in, between, in between use. And as a result of that, they were able to offer advice uh, on improvements that could be made. So, for example, in a number of these outbreaks, they identified that the nursing teams were using um, bags to transport the equipment between patients, um, which was, didn't really lend itself to very easy cleaning and decontamination. So they were able to provide advice and say, okay, rather than use these bags, why not actually transport your equipment in a box that can be very readily cleaned out uh, and can sit in, your, in the boot of your car, so it's very easy to transport in and out 
but can really be very thoroughly decontaminated and very quickly as well. So they were able to provide advice that um, that helped with, with that. In the outbreaks as well, the nurses were typically screened. And as I mentioned earlier, this was typically a throat screen. Um, and they were given antibiotics that would decolonize any um, uh, any body sites that were uh, where they were carrying group-based strep infection as well. So again, that was another key control measure that may have had an impact in, in limiting further transmission within these outbreaks. I have to say, though, we don't really know which of these measures was effective. Maybe it's a combination of, of all of them. It's very hard to know, and we, we certainly need to do more research in this field to try and understand that. Yeah, it's on that same note. I mean, it's hard enough, as we know, to control infections in hospitals. Um, it seems like there are major challenges for home infection control. Other than these couple of things you mentioned, are there any other measures that you think people should just be doing on a routine basis? Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, really challenging. Delivering health care in, in a patient's own home is incredibly difficult. It's just not an environment which is designed for delivery of healthcare. So it may not necessarily be very clean and there is a real risk of, of contamination within that um, that space. So I think, you know, it's, you know, key things that we've applied are things like ensuring there are high levels of education on infection prevention and control for, for these teams and just trying to work with them to review their practices and, and to see where we can actually improve things and make things slightly easier for them. However, these teams are extremely busy. They see a lot of patients. So, you know, a nurse may see up to 20 patients on a given day. So that's incredibly challenging in terms of trying to really maintain good infection prevention control practices and, and do everything that you should do in, in between going from one patient to another. 20 people a day, that seems hardly possible with um, moving, having commuting from one patient to very, another. Very, very quick, yeah. yeah. My goodness. So what do you feel is the most important public health um, element of this study? So for us, I think one of the most important things we wanted to do was to raise awareness of these outbreaks, just to say, look, this is a thing, this happens. These outbreaks really do happen. And by highlighting them uh, both within the public health community in the UK, in, internationally as well, and of course by highlighting the, the occurrence of these outbreaks with local microbiologists who, who might be helping to investigate them as well and diagnose infections, and uh, to the teams themselves. We, we can help to try and improve the detection of these outbreaks because clearly the sooner you can identify the outbreak, the sooner you can start to investigate and put in place some hopefully effective control measures. So for us, the, the highlighting of the, the fact of these outbreaks occurring is really key. Were there any surprises um, so I think one of the surprises I've found is that the um, the providers of these services were not necessarily always very well set up to facilitate outbreak investigations. So um, we did find that there were often delays in getting information that we needed, such as which member of staff had seen which patient on which day, so it's very basic information. Sometimes it was quite slow in coming to us. 
um, making arrangements for screening of the healthcare providers, issuing antibiotics to them. Uh, all of these things were quite delayed. In some instances, there wasn't necessarily an occupational health service that was in place to provide this kind of support for the teams. So for us, that was one of the key learning points as well, is just to emphasize to the commissioners who uh, who buy these services effectively for their local populations that it is really important that all these things are in place and there is an understanding that outbreaks can and will occur amongst these, these providers and they need to have these all these different um, services in place to facilitate the, the provision of information which will help us to, to manage these outbreaks effectively. Was there a difference in how these outbreaks were managed depending on where they occurred, like, say, London versus um, Northampton or some more rural area? I couldn't say that there were any obvious patterns like that. I can't see that they necessarily would have been. I, I think the experience of the local health protection teams and the experiences of those local providers in their past experiences in managing similar situations would be the sort of um, the sort of factor that would make the biggest difference. So in other words, if it wasn't entirely new to them, if they'd been through something similar in the past, they would build on that experience and would probably understand and hopefully have a, a you know a, a good relationship and an understanding of how things are going to play out, what kind of information is going to be needed, what kind of control measures are going to be needed, how we would work with the local healthcare providers within those teams to try and um, educate them about what was happening and, and what was likely to happen over the coming weeks and months in, in terms of the need for, for screening and, and possibly antibiotic prophylaxis. So as you've mentioned um, several challenges are there any other challenges to the study that you'd like, not necessarily to the process of um, stopping it, but just the study itself that you'd like to mention? Well, the, there's a lot which is still uncertain for us in terms of the understanding the, the mechanisms of the transmission. As, as we already spoke about before, it's, we are left with quite a lot of uncertainty, really, in terms of how the transmission, uh, what route of transmission is for for um, these infections within these outbreaks. So from, from my money, really what I'd want to see us being able to do in future is just to continue studying these outbreaks really carefully and trying to understand exactly what is happening, keeping an open mind about the routes of transmission, but working very closely with the providers, building good relationships with them, be able to do that much more to try and really unpick what, what might be happening within these teams and uh, and really try and use that then, of course, to formulate some, some potential ways of uh, preventing the, the transmission. I mean, I think there are also just some very basic uh, questions that we feel are not answered in terms of what is effective in terms in reducing transmission. So even simple things like use of surgical masks, if somebody's carrying group A strep in their throat and they wear a mask, how effective is that really in terms of stopping the transmission from that person to uh, someone uh, nearby? These for us are very, very basic questions, some of which have also been looked at in detail with, within the pandemic in the context of COVID transmission, 
But we really need to go that much further, I think, and look at this from the perspective of group A stroke transmission. Well, tell us about your job and what career path led you to it. So I worked in the UK Health Security Agency. It was formerly known as as Public Health England, so some people will, will still remember it from that. So as an epidemiologist, it's my job to establish surveillance systems for a number of different infectious diseases and to interpret the data that comes to us, analyze it, put it out there for people to see exactly what's going on at any point in time, where we're starting to see a rise in infections, where we need to do more to to try and control or investigate what might be driving changes in, in the epidemiology of these infections. So for me, it's all about the the science of sort of using that data to to affect something positive for patients and and the general population. So that's really, you know, what my day-to-day job is. I have particular expertise in group A streptococci. That was what my PhD was in. So I spend quite a lot of time working with local health protection teams in providing advice in terms of how uh, they should go about investigating outbreaks of um, of group A strep infection. And it is my career path. So my first degree was actually in uh, psychology. Um, and uh, having finished my uh, bachelor's degree in psychology, I was super keen to get a research job. And while I was hunting around for a research job, um, I actually decided to just to do some voluntary work just to sort of keep myself busy while I was waiting for the perfect job to come my way. And so I, I worked with um, in two places, one in uh, with homeless uh, shelters in London and day centres and in um, drug services in, in central London as well, so providing needle exchange and um, and working very closely with, with the therapeutic services that were provided to um, to drug users. And through the, both those routes, you, I could start to see, you know, what these individuals were really facing in their lives and how infections were really playing uh, a huge role in, in their lives and the impact that was having on them. I mean, it was during the time of AIDS and, it, you know, a lot of our, our clients had AIDS and had, you know, I was able to see the impact it had on, on them and, and become very uh, in, interested in infections and, and what could be done to prevent them. And so during that period, I, I saw a job advertised that was actually monitoring risk behavior in drug users um, and monitoring levels of HIV and hepatitis antibodies. And I applied for that and then got really very, very interested in public health and, and that that was it for me. I decided to specialize in epidemiology, so I did a master's and then eventually a PhD as well, and uh, have been there ever since. Well, it's certainly a very interesting path. I always sort of, when I look back, um, I mean, I love what I do as a communication scientist, but uh, I think being an epidemiologist would have been a very high second-ranking choice if it had occurred to me a long time ago. Living in England, what do you like to do with your free time? So what do I do in my free time? I like walking. Uh, I have a 14-year-old Labrador that I I love taking out for for nice walks on Hampstead Heath in London and traveling around the country with her. And I like to try and keep 
uh, keep fit by swimming and, yeah, I suppose spending as much time outside and travelling when I have the opportunity. So, in fact, right now I'm in Scotland rather than England, <laughs> looking out onto the, the Scottish the Scottish Highlands and occasionally hearing lovely bagpipes uh, being piped across the, the, the loch. Where exactly? I was in Scotland um, right before the pandemic. Um, one of my very favorite places. Where were, Where are you? I'm in Argyll, so on the west coast of Scotland. Very nice. I'm very envious. I always think that were I to have any UK roots, I would highly consider moving there. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Lamani. You're very welcome. It's been my pleasure, Sarah. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the May 2022 article, Invasive Group A Streptococcus Outbreaks Associated with Home Healthcare England 2018 through 2019 online at cdc.gov eid. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.